Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, 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 it's been another busy week here. We are really excited to be sharing some more time with everyone and introducing the latest episode of Life Changing Stories, The Pride of Britain. The podcast brought to you from all of us on the Pride of Britain team and our friends at TSB. In this week's session, Defying the Odds, we'll be discussing what happens when life gets really hard, when we face the kind of challenges that literally knock you off your feet, where we need to dig deep to find the strength and the determination to keep on going. And as is so often the case, family is key. My first guest is a real family man. He grew up in a large family himself. And in spite of being a brilliant singer, presenter, and now stage performer, he still says being a dad is his proudest achievement. He is, of course, the wonderful Peter Andre. And he took a break from appearing in the hit West End show Grease to chat about his new role and also about his very darkest days when he was younger. We're dragging you away for a, a short amount of time to talk to us on the Pride of Britain podcast because you're at the moment you're starring in Greece in the West End, yeah, which right. when you were growing up, I guess I'm trying to do the maths in my head. When you were a child, Greece came out in the 70s. 78. That's 78. Right. There you go. So, you know, and of course, Olivia Neutron Bomb was in it, Australian. <laughs> I love that. So, so, you know, it must it must have been a big part of your growing up, Greece, I would have thought. Yes, I was five years old. I was born in 78 and, and in 78, the film came out. And I remember there's this big buzz about this film, um, more so for us because we were about to immigrate to Australia. So we were, I was born in England. I was I, We immigrated when I was six. And I remember at five years old, everyone talking about this Australian woman being in this film. Yeah. And I thought, well, I've got to see this. You know, it was all for us. It was about her. Um, And actually, as I think the film became so hugely successful, the film really was about her at the end. Anyway, (laughs) she was so good. And and so I wanted to see it, but I was too young. I wasn't allowed. And then um, I think a few years later, when I finally got to see it, I saw it more than 10 times consecutively. So each week I'd go and watch it. And the only other film I ever saw that many times was Back to the Future. I mean, it really sort of, that time of my life, teenage years in Australia, it, film was so important. You, you remember films like Footloose and all yeah. these big films that were so massive in the 80s. Even though Greece was from the 70s, for me, the impact was in the 80s. You know, things have changed for you. You moved over to Australia when you were six as a kid, and then you had this big hit, you know, with Mysterious Girl. And it was like, wow, Peter Andre. Then you kind of disappeared, and then you came back. And and you've spoken openly previously about some of the dark days Mm -hmm. that you went through. And I just want to to run through, um, really, what happens. Yeah, so basically, rewind five years before Mysterious Girl, I launched my first musical career in Australia. So it was actually 30 years ago this year that I released my first single in Australia, which was 92, 1992. Yeah. And I got signed up in 1990. And the first, uh, there was a song that was massive in Australia before I even came to England called Give Me a Little Sign. And it was, it was huge in Australia. I ended up touring with Madonna and with Bobby Brown and all these amazing people. And I wasn't I, aware of that. I didn't realise yeah, that. So Madonna, so Madonna, so this is, it will all come into play as in, as in why later on I, I yep. suffered this. But in 1994, 93, sorry, I was the support act, the only opening act for Madonna for the girly tour in Australia, which was stadiums. And I wasn't known anywhere else in the world, but Australia. And I'd had this, had this amazingly huge success over there. And I I toured with her. Then I went on to do arenas and and of my own, and things were amazing. But what happened was, obviously, initially in in the early days in Australia when I first moved there, we suffered a lot of racism, and the racism 
See, I've looked at racism slightly differently to how it's always portrayed. Yeah. See, somebody, some there's systemic. There's something that's built into the system. And there's also people that might say things and not really mean it. And they're just being stupid. And then later on, they're like, oh, why did I say that? And I shouldn't have said it. And for me, the problem was in Australia at the time was when I first moved there, there were no other ethnic families. So we were not only the only Greeks on the Gold Coast at the time, but I had an English accent. I had curly hair, big nose. It was it was we really stood out now where I feel that racism changed is because years later if you go back there now it's not like that at all they're lovely people they're beautiful people it's so multicultural and so for me what when I went through that yes it caught up with me later on uh, and I suffered a lot of you know the stuff that I internalized but I saw a lot of those people years later and they were actually really lovely and we gave each other hugs and a lot of their friends are Italians Greeks and it was just a, a moment in time so I didn't feel in a way that, for me, it was forgivable completely because I understood that it just was a time, a part of a part of their childhood and they grew out of it. But then when I released the music in Australia, things changed. It was no longer racism. It was a different kind of bullying. You know, you'd walk down the street and guys would yell out obscenity, you know, who do you think you are? And they would, I'm not going to use the words, but they would throw things at you because now all of a sudden it was a different kind of thing. Now it's all of a sudden of like, why do you think you're so special? Because Australia, remember, is a small population. Yeah. To make it big in Australia is rare. And if you do, you're going to be saturated. You're going to saturate the market and people are going to turn on you. They will at some point. It's the tall poppy syndrome, as they call it. Yeah. Um, so we suffered, I suffered a different kind of thing that wasn't then racism and all of that stuff caught up with me years later. So then I came to England, mysterious girl happened. I, I forgot about all that had happened, all the, the negative stuff. And I only remembered all the positive stuff and things went really amazing in England. Everyone was multicultural and there was no, I had no such thing happen here as what had happened there. But then later on, um later on all of it caught up on me I think I was about 28 27 28 and so I'd been going since I was 16 yeah um so most people would have thought I'd only started here in England but because of all that backstory it meant that by the time I got to 27 I was tired I'd been going for years um and then all those inner things started to come up and started to bubble and started to boil and all that fear of going to nightclubs because I associated it with alcohol because one of the, sorry, I I know I'm jumping from bit to bit. um, But one of the, one of the incidences that happened in Sydney was in 1993 or 94, I think it was. And I had a, a gang of guys that I was in the club with my friend and I remember getting grabbed and thrown into a room I think it was the bathroom. I can't remember where it was, but I remember a guy, you know, pulled a knife right here to my throat and he threatened, he not just threatened me, but he was like, I mean, I don't want to go into detail because I know it's a podcast and I probably shouldn't go into, you know, in case there's anyone listening that would be, you know, sort of bothered by it, but it was not a good experience. And, and I remember that night, I remember thinking the next day, how lucky I was to be alive because these guys were serious. They weren't mucking about and for, for months, they were like, if we ever see you anywhere near this place, um, you know, a lot worse is going to happen. So I started getting a fear of clubs, a fear of being anywhere where there was alcohol because I related to it yeah. as, as a, something bad and uncomfortable. And now fast forward to my late 40s, I still straighten my hair because the curly hair reminds me of me being that little kid and those kids calling me what they did at school. I should have got over it by now, and I'm probably over it, but I wouldn't just turn up to an event with full curly hair. I just, I just can't I can't bring myself to do it, even now, and I've had therapy. Um, and I'm not, you know, it's not their fault. I. Some people will say, well, of course it's their fault, but I'm like, no, it's not, because those very kids are not like that now. 
you know, it's just it just was part of where we were at that time. So in it's our- about the society and its culture. Yeah, that's why. Different I, times. Yeah, that's why I think you know a lot of times people throw words around like "I'm offended," "That's racist," "That's this," and I'm thinking you've got to look at the overall picture. You know, the problem is if those kids were still like that now. Yeah. Then there's then there's something inbuilt in them. And it's different. But when you grow and you learn and you kind of realize your mistakes, I have a different view to a lot of people in that way. I, I forgive a lot because I think I think people do change. I really do believe that. Um, anyway, so, yeah, so it was a bit of a rough time. Sorry, I just delved right into that. But no, it's fascinating. Kind of- this is stuff I didn't know, Pete, to be yeah. perfectly honest. And, and I suppose, you know, when the... The other men were jealous of you, young men, and it would have been envy because you were this handsome superstar in Australia, and it would have been envy. It it directly would have been, I would have thought. Well, just to give you an example, yes, you could, I mean, it would be big-headed of me to say that. So I'll put it to you in another way of how this happened. The night, the incident, right, the incident of this night in the club, I tr- kept wondering, what did I do wrong? Yeah. It surely couldn't just be a bunch of guys that were jealous. There had to be more to it. And it took me a few years to find out what the problem was. But here, this is a story. This is, this is fascinating. The guy that was in the club with his friends that had taken me into that room and had done what he had done, he said, my brother is in hospital because of you. And I could never understand it. Because I thought, well, I haven't had a fight. I... I I, I couldn't yeah. do it. And so I kept wondering, what were they going on about? What were they going on about? And it, it came, it became apparent years later that a guy and his girlfriend were in the street. The girlfriend wanted to come to one of my shows. He lost it. Would you want to go see him for? You know, it was just one of those things. And they had an argument in the street. And apparently, this is how the story goes. Apparently, yeah. he hit her. They had a big argument and he hit her. This group of guys came over, a bunch of guys, and they yeah, this guy dealt with really him. bad. Yeah. And he ended up in hospital. Right. Now it's my fault. So right. this, this brother of this guy and his gang, because you know there's a big gang culture in Sydney and Australia. I don't know if people know this, but it was massive back in the 90s and 80s. A lot of them. Yeah, there's a, a big gang culture there. But yeah. And, and so I found out that that was the reason. And I thought, so it wasn't just the jealousy thing. I think it was more because of you. Yeah. Because of me. Yeah. So, so I started to, to uh, internalize the fear. I wouldn't show it to people. I started, it's, I just bottled it up and thought, no, I'll be fine. And do you know, even now, Carol, I mentioned about the curly hair. Do you know now I wouldn't be seen dead in a nightclub? because a because i'm nearly 50 <laughs> but but also the main reason is because i associate it with, with trauma and so and and millions and millions of people around the world suffer like this there's little trigger points that 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 will yeah. make them f- fearful and because other people can't see it they think you're fine yeah so so you suffer in silence which i did until i spoke about it and the therapy all helped, the medication helped. But what it did was it got me to a point of now not being scared to go to a nightclub. I just don't want to go. Yeah. And that's where you want to be. You want to be at a point of like, you don't do something because you don't want to do it, not because you can't do it. There's a big yeah. difference. You know, by 27, you'd sold out at Wembley at the arena. And you know that so you know you were there, mysterious girl, and then it was like, oh, where's Peter Andre gone? And mm. was it said that you know I'm just talking about like you know average Joe in the UK. Exactly what happened, uh, yeah. Yeah, and that again must be difficult. See, this is this is a it's a brilliant question because I remember actually on radio when I was about 28 when I disappeared. I remember, I'm not sure who it was, whether it was Chris Evans or somebody started a campaign of where's Peter Andre? I remember, yeah. I remember being in places and they go, oh, we've spotted him. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? But what happened was because of, because of all those years of what happened in Oz, I was determined to make it in England. 
I, I was so determined, more determined than I ever was, because I wanted, I wanted to see if I could make it somewhere else other than, yeah, and and see if it would be different. So when it happened here in England, it happened very fast as far as the, we were concerned. Yes, but yeah. obviously there was all that force behind us with all this huge, amazing success. So when I got to twenty-seven, I sold out Wembley Arena. I, I think I was, I may have been a bit younger, but I remember it being the dream for me to sell out Wembley Arena because Wembley Arena then was, I guess, the O2 now. Yeah, correct. Wembley Arena was the arena to perform at and I wanted to sell it out and I did it. And I remember the next day thinking, I can't believe I fulfilled my dream. This is huge. Where do you go from here? Um, what I should have thought was Wembley Stadium, but I didn't. I just thought Wembley Arena, Wembley Arena, that was my, that was my thing. And then, then I wanted a bit of a break. And I said to my manager, Claire, who I'm still with today, 30 yeah. something years later. Wow. I said, Claire, I just want a bit of a break. I've been going since I was 16. I want to go home to my family. I want to be with mum and dad. I needed it. I needed it. I'd sort of gone full circle and wanted to be back where I started. She said, go, but don't leave it too long. You know, have a bit of a break. And then when you come back, you know, because the music industry changes and I'm like, I'll be fine. Well, three months turned into three years because when I went back to Oz, that's when I had my breakdown. I was, right. yeah, I remember it like it were yesterday. Something happened. I'd never experienced it before. It was, you know, again, a, a lot of people may relate, but when you have what they call a, you know, a panic attack or, a, yeah. you know, whatever, however you want to label it, it was something I'd never experienced before. Yeah. Came from nowhere. You know, uh, I froze. I, I rolled myself up into a ball. I couldn't speak to anyone. Days and days and days. And mum and dad were like, you know, they're old school Greek parents. You know, they're yeah. the kind of like, oh, go and have some lamb. You will be fine. <laughs> that sort of thing. It, it is. It's like. I understand. Oh, it's all right. I make you some food. Okay. So I was like, I couldn't explain to them. How do I tell my parents who are strict Jehovah's Witnesses who are very, you know, Greek in their ways, who, who believe that everything is, there's an answer to everything. And I couldn't explain this to them. So I told them that I was um, just feeling sick, you know, like, oh, oh. so they took me to the doctor and the doctor was asking me all sorts of questions and in front of my mum and dad, and I was really embarrassed and <laughs> because the doctor knew, but yeah. my parents didn't. So yeah. the doctor knew it was something psychological. My parents thought it was something physical. So when he started asking me questions about my upbringing in front of my mum and dad, you know, um, it was an uncomfortable situation. But anyway. And back then, Pete, it, it just wasn't understood at all, at all, No, was it? I mean, it was never no, spoken about either. Never, ever spoken about. Well, I remember going to the... To, I, I went to New York. I said to mum and dad, I had to go and record in New York. But what I actually went there for was because I knew a friend and asked them to help me check uh. myself in somewhere so I could get help. And they sent me to a, a ward. I can't remember what hospital it was, but, you know, there were people there that were very unwell. Yeah. And I checked myself in and they said, are you sure you want to do this? I said, I, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. Yeah. And they tried me on all sorts of medication and all sorts of things. And it, and it made me feel terrible. Um, and after two weeks, they said, you don't belong in here. You're okay. You just, you're just going through a hard time. And I went through different therapists and mum and dad, I'm ringing them saying I'm, my recording's going well. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and meanwhile, I'm, I'm really suffering. Two of my brothers came out and visited me there. And I said, guys, I'm never going to be the same. I'm just going to have to accept this. I'm never going to, I'm never going to get over this. And this is my life now. And I remember, you know, being in tears, my brother's going, you know, look, we'll, we'll help. We'll find a way. We'll help. We'll find a way. Anyway, eventually, eventually, eventually a, a good friend of mine in America, the sister of Rachel Hunter, um, Jackie Hunter. Yeah. Jackie said, I want you to see somebody that's really good, really good. And they don't believe in medication and they really believe they can help you. And, and I went and saw this woman, her name was Claudia, and I'll never forget, it was like a lightning bolt moment, a lightning bolt wow. moment when she spoke to me. This was two years after the first incident and I'd seen so many different people. And for the first time, I saw potential 
of I saw things I hadn't seen them before and realized you can beat this. Because one of the things, and anyone suffering from mental health will tell you, a lot of times people say, you can't cure it, but you learn to live with it. Yeah. I challenge that. I challenge it because I think you can beat it because I, I beat it. There's a period of time in your life when you're healed that you've beat it. It doesn't mean it's not going to come back and it doesn't mean you're not more susceptible to it. You break your leg and it gets fixed. Chances are you breaking your leg again might happen and it might be a bit easier to break your leg, but for a period of time you're fixed. So I eventually got fixed, as they say, and I remember praying, going, please, if you give me another chance to see life how I want to see it, I'll never take it for granted again. And it was that time that I went into the jungle. It was uh-huh. it was literally six months after that. So I, I mean, was I was still on medication, you know, I was still didn't know that. Yeah, I was still really scared and nervous and you know, and then things but but I left on a high. I didn't leave when things had just sort of died down. I'd left on a high, so there was always room to come back. It just three years was a long time, you know. And and for music, I was like, look, I'll just do this show. I heard it was like Survivor. I thought, yeah, I'll face some of my fears and <laughs> And the rest is history, really, because it was just so I, I was still going through it while I was there, but I was on my on the mend then. Yeah. Yeah. And that was huge. I mean, I, I'm a celeb. What year was that then, Pete? 2004. 2004, was it? God, is it that long ago? Yeah. So <gasps> 98 to 2004 were the 99 to 2004 around that time were the disappearing years, but I was, dis- yeah. I was going through hell. You know, I, I've only ever suffered from depression once, proper depression. And and I realised it was a menopausal, it was hormonal depression. Yeah, right. And so when I had, um, and I have spoken about it, I don't talk about it very much, to, to be honest, because I'm one of those, oh, right, crack on, you know. But mm. um, it, uh, it, it resolved very simply with um, like oestrogen gels and all of that within 48 hours and I never felt like that again, oh, but I've wow. never forgotten how it felt Yeah, because I had no problems. That was the thing, you know, right. I had no problems, you know, I had no financial worries. I had no issues with the children. I didn't have a, you know, my love life was, it was all of that was there were no problems, but I just couldn't come out of the blackness, even though mine resolved because it was a physiological thing uh, very quickly. It, I, I, I'll never forget that. And, you know, for, for someone like you described that you were in that and to go, you know, to book yourself into a hospital and mm. be on all the medications, that is quite something. That's a trauma in itself. There's things that I'm still scarred about, like I said, about the curly hair, which is ridiculous. Maybe when I'm 50, I'm going to let that go. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It really is. When I, logically, it makes no sense. Yeah. But I see, I see what those kids called me when I look in the mirror. Only when my when I met my <laughs> yeah curly curly so, top and my kids juniors like dad you should wear your hair curly it's so cool trim it on the sides and wear it you know <laughs> and I'm like I can't do it but maybe I will you know so it's it's just about there's certain things that will scar you for a long long time and other things that you will overcome but you can beat it for sure. Do you think that? Um your experience of the dark days has made you kinder? A million percent. And you know what? This is such a good question because I believe I was like this when I was 16, before it all started. Then I got a bit cocky. You know, yeah. I, I think I was nice to people. I do think that, but I do think I was, you know, it was all thrust upon me and Madonna and touring and, you know, and, and you, you as a child, you kind of think this is amazing. It's never going to end. And my dad was fundamental, which is why I'm like that with Junior now. Dad kept saying to me, he kept making sure that I stayed. If I ever got a bit arrogant or whatever, yeah. it's, he would put me right back in my place. But you're absolutely right. When this experience happened, I remember going in the jungle and I remember still around that time, I mean, I probably said or did things that weren't, you know, great even after that short period of time. But I tell you what happened. 
the break, the yeah. breakdown that became a breakthrough. What was amazing was when I had children, and even and even what I what I said to the children at three is completely different to what I said to them when they were ten. As in, I changed over the next few years. I changed a lot, and I've basically gone back to that kid I was, where I'm just so grateful for everything, and and I am because. We were brought up, like I said, Jehovah's Witnesses, very strict, you know, very always polite, always, you know, living your life in a godly way. And even though now I've probably sinned every sin possible, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd ever be allowed back in. But that's not the point. The point is that what they instilled in me has, has come back in abundance because I feel very, very grateful about things. But yeah, I remember saying things to Junior. I remember saying to him at three years old, pink is for girls, blue is for boys. Boys shouldn't wear pink. Imagine, right? And this is what I'm thinking when he's, because of what was instilled in me. By the time he's 10, I'm saying to him, he was 12 actually, princess was nine. I remember sitting them down going, guys, I don't mind who you love. I don't mind who you love. You just genuinely love them. Be respectful. I don't mind if it's a boy, if it's a girl. I remember having this conversation with them because now I've changed. I'm thinking, no, I don't agree with that. Yes. That's what I thought then. Yes. And, and now, um, now when Junior is 17, he comes and sees me on stage as Vince Fontaine wearing a pink outfit, <laughs> right, and says to me, Dad, can I wear it out for a fancy dress? And I'm like, when I'm done, it's yours. <laughs> and that's how times change. So I think what happened was the process of me coming through that, maybe I still stuck to my ways at the beginning, but over time I changed a lot and I realised I'm now really who I probably wanted to be, even then at 16, I probably felt the way I feel now, but you're instilled things and you think, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. Mm. My kids, my, my, my daughter, don't forget princess, who's yeah. going to be 15 next week <gasps> up until three years ago. Yeah. Up until no five years ago, she's going to be a nun. <laughs> never going to have a boyfriend. Yeah. Oh, she's never, now I joke about the nun bit now because I just do it to wind her up, but she's like, dad, can I introduce you to my boyfriend? I'm like, of course, I'd love to meet you. Again, it's change. You know, what I thought then, how I was going to be as a dad, I'm like the biggest softie and they know it now. <laughs> they take advantage of it too. I want to ask you, because obviously, you know, you've lived a life that not many have, uh, a cosmopolitan life, you know, an international life. You have lived in, you know, two countries plus um, properly and not, not many people have um and you know you see societies are changing do you think we're in a good space at the moment or do you see a touch of regression going on I think with what happened in America with the ridiculous law and you know what I don't care if people argue with me about it yeah I think it's a ridiculous law where they're going to try and tell a, a, a forget whether it's male or female they're trying to tell a human being what they can and can't do with their body is for me is ridiculous that's the first thing I think the fact that you know and I I hope I'm not speaking out of line but the fact that there's no gun laws but there's yeah. a law yeah. that's telling a woman what she can and can't do with the body. I think it, it, there's a real problem there. So in that way, yes, there's regression. Some people say, yes, I had people saying to me, but are you saying at 39 weeks? I said, hold on a second. If something has happened to somebody, yeah. okay, say something has happened where a, a woman's been forced into this situation. Yeah. She may not be able to admit that in the first part of her pregnancy maybe not even in the second part of her pregnancy, but there might be a moment where she realises she needs to talk about, she can't do this anymore. Who are we to tell her, well, you should have said this three months ago or six months ago. So, so that's my, my views on it is the thing was wrong then as a law and it's wrong now. So I think in some ways, yes, there is regression in that way. But in other ways, I think I see things like, what the Brits do when there's 
I don't know, a children in need or when there's a UNICEF like the other day, what I was doing, the amount people come together. Now that to me is growth. We are not just the Brits, you know, this happens all over the world, but I think people in general have, have, have started to become more as one, even though social media and everything seems to separate everybody and make them less social. I actually think as, as people, we've become stronger we've moved on we we've started to understand society changes people are moving with the times and i think that's a wonderful thing well it is one of the things over the last 23 years that we've um tried to do with the pride of britain awards is to bring people together and you've been a massive supporter for like well for a very 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 long time haven't you I saw you on that, you and your beautiful family and gorgeous Emily um, on the red carpet last year in, uh, in October. Um, you know, you have been to a number of, of the Pride of Britain Awards. What, what do you think about them, Pete? Well, I think they're great. And I think it's important for people to know that that's the kind of icing on the cake is the awards show. It's what they do the whole year before that, leading up to that point. I mean, as you know, Carol, being so heavily involved in it, the work starts practically the day after the last one finishes. So people think of the awards and they think, oh, this is a great night to celebrate. But the work leading up to it is, is, you know, incredible. And you can see that on the night too with all the videos of all the different people going and seeing the workshops, going and meeting the families. There's so much that goes on. Um, I think the awards show are important because yes, they're a celebration and yes, there's lovely, you meet people and there's lovely food. And, but but all that aside, what, what it gets to do is the whole country get to be part of it, which is brilliant. And they get to see the work that has happened over the last, over the previous year. Um, yeah. and, I, and I just think it's so important that it grows bigger and bigger each year. I mean, last year I went, I remember we were on the red carpet and you have to <laughs> wait, like, I think you have to, I was like, I mean, it was like the the the, the greatest restaurant of all time. But people are waiting <laughs> down the, it was brilliant because it means people want to be part of it. They love what it stands for. I love what it stands for. Final question. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got all these girls at your concerts when you were doing Mysterious Girl and Beyond going, B, I love you, I love you. What are they shouting at you now? They're shouting, my nan loves you. <laughs> and, and honestly, I, I get it all the time. The other day, I've got to, I'm sorry I ramble on, but I've got to tell you this. The other day, this young girl ran straight past me to Junior, yeah. gave me the phone and said, can you take a picture of me and Junior? I said, sure, took a picture. <laughs> then her mum came and said, oh, hi, Junior, and then turned around and went, Peter, she goes, I grew up with you. So then she got the daughter to take a picture of me and her mum. And both of them said, the girl said, my grandma loves you. And the mum said to me, oh, my mum loves you. Oh, and I said, I said, do you love me? You know, just joking. And yeah, she went, yeah, yeah. well, yeah, but it's not the same, is it? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean it's not the same? I'm like, so I'm, I'm coming to terms with that and I'm fine with it. My son, he can take over by all means. <laughs> Oh, it's it, it, listen. You to be loved by grandmas is a beautiful thing. Let me tell you, uh, they're the originals, mate. I oh love. Oh God, I'm very happy with anything like that. <laughs> it's very, very, very funny. I love that, um, Peter Andre. Thanks so much for chatting and for telling us your tale. It's been an as ever an absolute delight, and we wish you all the very best, you and your beautiful family. It's always a joy talking to Peter. He. he I was surprised, to be honest, by how many years he had been in that deep depression and how desperate that had become. That was something that I hadn't been aware of uh, beforehand. Um, He's got so much energy. He really, really has. So thanks, Pete, for that. Thank you very much. At TSB, we're proud to partner with the Pride of Britain Awards because we want to say thank you to all the everyday heroes, to the ones who put the fun in fundraising, or those who speak up for others, to the good-natured few who plant seeds to feed communities, and to the warm-hearted people who always have the kettle ready. TSB partners the Pride of Britain Awards, thanking those who help others, because that's life made more. 
and talking of energy. My next guest is full of it. I met this wonderful young man several years ago when he was recognised with the Teenager of Courage Pride of Britain Award. If you haven't met him before, Moen Eunice is one of life's very special people. He was born with a condition called epidermolosis bullosa, EB, as he calls it. It causes searing pain and blisters which will not heal and it's life limiting. Moen is 22 now, but when he was first diagnosed as a baby, his parents were warned he might not make his first birthday. Well, luckily he's gone to prove everybody wrong. And despite needing daily treatment and spending much of his life, much of every day in pain, he is someone who always goes out of his way to help others and to stay positive. So let's hear what Mo has been up to. I think it's nearly five years since I last uh, had the pleasure of your company on the stage at Pride of Britain, 2017. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's been that long. Well, you took the awards, you stole the show, I have to say, in 2017. And um, how old were you then? You were 17? Yeah, 17. I was just going to turn 18. And... um, you know, for those people who didn't see that particular uh, programme and that award ceremony, just describe, you know, the illness that you've had since birth. And then we'll, we'll kind of chat about that and mm-hmm. how things then were and how things are. Yeah, I mean, I suffer from uh, a condition called EB. Yeah. And um, it's a life-threatening skin condition um, where you have no skin. Um, so I was when I was born, um, the doctors told me I wouldn't live past the age of one um, because the condition was so rare and so lethal. Um, there are three different types of EB, but the one I have was the was the more severe one. Um, yeah, so they said I wouldn't live past one, and I guess I just lived, and <laughs> that was it, and just carrying on. Now I mean. Life was much easier when I was a child because as you do, as you grow older, you, you kind of deteriorate with this condition and you, you, your skin gets like really bad and you can't really do much. Um, so that that is life now for me. But yeah, you know, when we saw your film in the Pride of Britain Awards, mm-hmm. I was taken and so were others with how long it took to to yeah. look after you and to have all the gauzes put on and so on that um just to be able to get up yeah it's well we thought it was bad then but now it's just yeah it's even worse now um it takes much longer see i i just sent an email to <clears throat> sorry to you guys saying i was going to be a bit late because my skincare still wasn't finished and I started at eight eight a.m. this morning, and oh, I've not I've been nonstop. I've been stuck in the bathroom in the in the treatment room um, <clears throat> for the last yeah all morning all day basically until fifteen minutes ago. So that's um, like five or six hours then. That yeah, it's much harder now. It takes much longer, and my skin's much worse now. Do you find that? you can't do as much because you were going out, weren't you? And you had your uh, like podcast with the villa and all of that and being cheeky as hell with all the footballers and people. Are you still doing that? You're still able to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I I do as much as I can now. Like um, I'm doing more public speaking and stuff now. Um, Yeah. I've done a TED talk as well. Have you? Where can people um, find that then? Um, so that's on the TEDx YouTube channel. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, it's a talk from me about it's called uh, my life without skin. Um, and since I did the TED talk, um, I've had a lot of approaches to come and do talks elsewhere and and stuff. And that's what I'm just trying to do. And I'm trying to like build my profile a bit more and just start doing motivational speaking because I feel like with what I go through uh, on a daily basis it's like 
I, I can inspire others. If I can get up and basically do things, yeah. I feel like anyone can, to be honest. Do you find, can I ask you about the lockdown years yeah. and what happened, you know, during that time for you? Yeah, it, it was tough because, um, like, the, the care company I had at the time, um, we were with the care company, they, they, weren't, they weren't the best, um, they weren't very nice, and um, they were refusing to come and do my skincare or anything. Um, and even though it was, even though they should have, and it, it was out there that, you know, any, you know, like NHS and nurses, etc., they were still out there caring for people, but it was just this one company that I was with who were refusing to come and, for like four months or five months I didn't have um any carers or anything so it was just me and my mom and it and maybe my dad sometimes and it just took ages um yeah <clears throat> so it, it was tough and I mean like being at home when see I'm like an outgoing person so I, like, yeah. I don't like to be at home I, I start to think more and I start to feel more upset about life and stuff when I'm at home and not doing much and that's why I try to go out now like I drive now and stuff as well do I'm you like, yeah oh fantastic like, so like yeah I do try to go out as much as I can and keep my mind off off the pain um and and yeah but lockdown was hard because obviously we weren't able to do any of that so yeah, but I mean, I can I can imagine that. Tell me about your driving then. When did you pass your test? I passed as, as soon as I turned eighteen. Actually, it was um, yeah, I was really eager to just start driving because I was just like like I said, I like to be out and stuff. So me driving was like a thing that really would have helped, with, you know, me mentally as well. So uh, I made sure I, I passed. I passed pretty much straight away. And, um, yeah. <laughs> So can I ask you, because you've spoken about various footballers already, who are your heroes? Um, I mean, um, well, from when I was young, it was Gabby von Lahore. And he still is because, like, he, from ever since I was a child going to Villa and stuff, he was the one that always got me tickets. And oh. he always came to see me, to visit me at home sometimes or when I was in hospital. So, um and I've got to say, Jack Grealish as well, because he's done a lot with me. Has um, he? Even, even now, even now playing for Manchester City, he still contacts me and asks how I am, and I still speak to him like on a daily basis and stuff. So it's um yeah. So what are your plans then? Just tell me about your plans for the future, because you have a vlog now. Is that right? Yeah, well, I have. Um, I had my own podcast. I launched it last year. Yeah, what's it called? Um, called Tell us all about it. The Live to Inspire podcast, it's called. Um, so that's on all major platforms. Um, and I've had guests on there, such as Ricky Pison on there, who's, who's um, yeah, who's told us about, who's basically just, get, get, the whole point of the podcast was just to get people on there to give an inspirational message. So... That's what each episode um, does. Um, it, it inspires everyone in a certain way. It sounds wonderful. You've interviewed Peter Andre as well. He's amazing. He's, he's kept in contact with me from back then. And, yeah, it's just, um, it's, it's, it's amazing to, like, to know I have these, like, guys who are always there for me because he's always there for me and, like Vicky is as well, and a lot of the celebrities I met on the night, they they still keep in contact with me. So it's it's yeah, it's just amazing. In terms of um, EB, are there any new treatments that are coming up that might help you? Yeah, so there was a treatment a few years ago that I was supposed to have in Italy, um, but the when COVID came, it, everything just shut down the whole, yeah, everything, the whole treatment centre and stuff. And now everything's open again. They're not doing it. They're not reopening. Right. So that's 
that 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 was like that was the best chance I had of any treatment. Um, and now the the skin professor that I see in Solihull Hospital, he's trying his best because we did raise a lot of money back then, um, which is still which has still been put away for a possible treatment I can have soon. But I'm just waiting to hear from the the professor and yeah, just. I don't know. I don't want to get like. I try not to think about it or yeah until it like actually happens. Yeah, I understand that because you don't want to kind of be disappointed all the time, do you? By that. Yeah, because I mean, a few years ago, when when it did happen, like they took a biopsy of my chest and everything, and I was so happy. I couldn't sleep. Like I kept thinking, like I'll be able to walk without pain. I'll be able to like sleep without pain, and I just kept thinking about it and. When COVID came and everything just shut down, it was just like the hardest thing to overcome. It was just so tough to know that it's not going to happen. Well, hopefully that research will come back somewhere, Mo. They won't waste it, surely. Yeah, no, they they, they won't because like a lot of there's a lot of pr- pressure on like the professor on that as well because remember we had footballers and celebrities that had put money in the goal in the in the funding in the goal fund um page so a lot of celebrities are, and we've reached the target and everything and the money is there it's just now getting the right people to do the treatment and finding the right people to do right. the treatment. what messages would you have for people now anyone who's listening now and there'll be lots of people listening in terms of you know i, I was just talking to peter it was earlier on in this podcast and he was saying about his darkest days and he was in and out of various hospitals in America with depression for a number of years, Mo, um, mm. in his like late twenties and early thirties. Um, and that kind of changed him and he was just giving messages really. What, what kind of messages, is it what you were saying in the Ted talk about making the most of your life on a, day-to-day basis yeah that's one message i always give like that is one message i stick the stand strong stand strong by um not just that one but um like never judging never judging people by picture or judging people on social media because the more that people have been doing it with me the more i've realized it yeah it is quite frustrating you know, um, like I, I was at, I think last year I was at, at the darkest time I've ever been in, and I just wanted to to just give up and just end everything. And a lot of people at the time were messaging me like, "Wow, well, you met Jack Grealish. Why are you doing this? Why are you trying to end your life and stuff like that?" But it hurts because they're they're not thinking you know like I actually do go through quite a lot yeah, more than yeah. no one can understand so that's one message I just yeah I, I do always tell people now so if last year was marks out of 10 was a one and you were going through that terrible time what what's it back up to now I'm thinking I'm just gradually getting I don't think it's it has it isn't to be honest it's not much um, higher um, than yeah than it probably should be because like I said at the beginning of this like imagine having to be in a bathroom like seven yeah. hours a day yeah whilst your mates and friends and everything everyone are just out there doing normal things like how how would that play with your mind yeah and, and the more I'm growing older like my friends some of them are having kids some of them are getting married some of them are doing things like adult adult things and I'm just there just stuck like living the way I've always lived and that really does mess mess with your head quite a bit so I wouldn't say it is it's it's much higher probably like a three or four maybe I, I okay. don't know the one thing that you should know is there are lots of people who are willing you on you know because you do inspire people and you can't you know, you you one of those that that provides hope, but I suppose that you know that that brings its responsibility as well, doesn't it? Being you brings a responsibility. 
definitely. Keep us up to date with what's going on in Mo world, the mm-hmm. mowing world. Definitely. Um, and, uh, and particularly if this research goes on and what, and what your professor decides to do with the, with the GoFundMe, that would be very interesting, That now that things are becoming available. No? Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we can. I, I, I know he's going for a, a conference soon, a meeting with some people. So, hopefully, they, you know, they, they are the people and they, they can do it. But, like I said before, I just, yeah, I don't get my hopes up just yet. Okay. All right, my darling. Well, we're sending love to you and okay. uh, up the villa. And uh, <laughs> and uh, sending love to you in Birmingham, my love. I think most story puts everything into perspective, doesn't it? And I just hope that the research improves and, and that can improve Moen's day-to-day life. It's so good to, to meet up with him again. Now, as you know, uh, your stories of pride Slot is here to celebrate more amazing people doing extraordinary things. And today's episode is no exception. JK picks up the tale. How would you react if you saw a stranger being attacked? Would you try and intervene, rush to help? Well, friends Ellie Hughes and Chloe Woods say they felt they didn't have a choice when they witnessed an assault on an elderly gentleman. The pair were out walking near their homes in Warrington when they spotted a 74-year-old man being attacked and then thrown into the River Mersey. As he struggled in the water, they realised they had to do something to help, and fast. He was clinging onto a branch to stop himself being washed away. They were rightly worried that if they jumped into the water, they could also be at risk. Unwilling to give up or leave him, the plucky youngsters formed a human chain to pull the traumatised man to the bank and to safety. When we saw the man in the water holding onto a branch, we just immediately started to help him out, Ellie told us. Chloe adds, Ellie had hold of me and I reached out and grabbed the man. I was worried that when he let go of the branch, I might lose my grip and he would have gone down the river. Luckily, the man was okay and after thanking the girls, was able to make his way home. Thank goodness they stepped in. Wow, that's something I don't think any of us will forget. Wonderful. Now, if you have something you'd like to share about yourself or somebody in your life, please do get in touch for the chance to feature them in our regular Your Stories of Pride slot. For now, though, all that's left is for me to say a big thank you to all of our guests in this episode, to Peter Andre, to Moen Eunice, to our friends at TSB, to the lovely JK, and of course, most importantly, to you for listening thank you don't forget to let us know what you think about this and all of our other episodes of our podcast on our pride of britain social media channels we do value your opinion immensely i'll be here next time when we'll be talking to even more extraordinary people thank you until then goodbye